0: Our scripture this morning is from Matthew chapter 22. For those of you who are new with us, what we do here at our church is we go through God's word together. And so we're in the book of Matthew right now in chapter 22. We're going to beginning, uh, begin today on verse, with verse 15. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there's one provided for you in the back of the pew. You will find this morning's text uh, on page 827, page 827, page 827. Then the Pharisees, verse 15, then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. This is God's word. You may be seated. Lord, as we open your word together as the body of Christ, and there are, Lord, I know those who have come today who are not a part of the body of Christ and who are wanting to know who Jesus is, exploring Jesus, testing Jesus, questioning Jesus, But I pray that you would speak to both of us, those of us who are in Christ, help us to better know our Lord and Savior through your word. And those of us here who have gathered, who are not in Christ, Lord, show them Jesus. Show us our God-created duty to worship Jesus. And let Jesus be glorified this morning, in Christ's name, amen. Well, one of the things that, that I do when preparing ahead of time on how to preach and how to separate uh, the different chapters and verses is I, um, I usually find a few texts that really jump out, to, jump out at me, and they jump out at me, and, and they're texts that I feel like really need to be emphasized, <laughs> And going back to more than a year ago when I was starting to separate Matthew out, I I already knew that this was one of those texts that I wanted to have its very own Sunday. After all, many of us have heard this saying of Jesus before. It's one of his most famous sayings. Even non-Christians have heard this saying of Jesus. And you can see why this would be really a well-known saying, can't you? That that pay to Caesar, the things that are Caesar's line, really jumps out at us. Especially in our political climate. Especially in our state. After all, we Californians pay a higher gas tax than anyone else in the country. We pay more income taxes than almost anyone else. We pay higher property taxes than most other people in the country. And so taxes and what we owe to Caesar, or the state, and we use those words interchangeably today, or the nation, this is especially relevant to us. But when we really immerse ourselves in what's going on between Jesus and the, those who are opposing him here, we realize paying taxes isn't really what this text is about, It's certainly a point that Jesus is making, and we're going to talk about that, as long as we live in the world, death and taxes, right? That's a certainty. But but paying taxes is not the point of what Jesus is getting at. At the end of this interchange between Jesus and the Pharisees and the Herodians, when the Pharisees and the Herodians walk away marveling at what Jesus has said, they're Their wonder is not that Jesus answered yes, pay your taxes, without really saying yes. They're in wonder at the second answer he gave, render to God what is God's. That's what's being highlighted here, and that's the main point of this text, render to God what is his. But to see that as the main point, we together have to do a little bit of work, okay, There's a lot of political context here, there's a lot of historical context here, and we've got to uncover that in order to really understand the text. And there's also context here, just like literary context. In in Matthew's gospel, this text is is a part of the the gospel, according to Matthew. It's it's a part in in recent chapters of this ongoing back and forth between Jesus and and these religious leaders in Jerusalem. The religious leaders had confronted Jesus. They'd asked him this question, where does your authority come from? And Jesus returned their question with a question of his own, and then they kind of had this stalemate. And so then Jesus broke the stalemate by going on the offensive. And he had three parables for them. And the point of Jesus' parables was that the Jewish leadership was guilty. They were guilty of living in unrepentant disobedience to God, and worse still, they were guilty of rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. And Jesus, if you remember this, the past two weeks, Jesus was saying, because of your guilt, judgment is coming. And in response, they have nothing to say. They're speechless. They have no argument. There's no ground to stand on because everything that Jesus said was absolutely true. All they can do is, all they can think is, we have got to get rid of this guy. We have to figure out a way to kill him because they have no defense. And that's what's happening here in verse 15. Matthew says, the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And that 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 plotting, that they're gathering together and plotting, that is literally, they're conspiring against Jesus. They are fulfilling long ago prophecies from Psalm chapter two. In Psalm two, the psalmist says the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Who's his anointed? Messiah. That's what's happening here. The irony is thick, isn't it? They're attempting to persuade the crowds that Jesus can't possibly be the Messiah by fulfilling messianic prophecies. That's what they're doing. They're trying to to, to turn the crowds against Jesus, and they have to have a conspiracy in order to do it. Remember how the primary way that, that these leaders operate politically is that they gauge the crowds. To, to determine how the, the crowds are going to respond, and then they answer questions accordingly. So, it's the, what's which way is the political wind blowing? Okay, well that's how we'll answer the question. That's how they operate. Their regard isn't for the truth at all, is it? Their regard is for popular opinion. And as we saw a couple of weeks ago, they have no fear of the Lord. They fear man. We saw them operate this way just in in chapter 21. At the beginning of that interchange in the temple, Jesus asked them where they thought John the Baptist's ministry was from, right? And he caught them in a snare because if they said that John the Baptist's ministry is from heaven, if they said he's a prophet, well, they would be admitting that Jesus was the Messiah because that's what John had taught. And if they said that John wasn't a prophet, Well, they would upset the crowds because the crowds believed he was. And so for fear of the crowds, they didn't answer the question. And then we saw this again after Jesus' second parable. In chapter 21, verse 46, Matthew said, and although they were seeking to arrest him, what happened? They feared the crowds. This is how they operate. This is how these guys think. They live and, and breathe fear of man. And given that this is central to how they think, they're going to test Jesus with a question that they believe will force him to think in the same way. They're going to force Jesus to reckon with the crowds. See, the crowds had very strong opinions about this issue of the Roman poll tax. In Israel at that time, the entire region was under Roman governance. We've seen this come up a few times in in Matthew's Gospel. And there were essentially two groups among the Jewish people. There's more than this, but you could roughly divide them between these two groups. They were the pro-Rome group, or the Rome-tolerant Jews, and then the anti-Rome group, or the the Rome-averse Jews. On the the pro-Rome side were the Herodians and the Sadducees. And they tolerated Rome because while Rome was in power, they had power. Herod and Herod's family were were appointees of Rome. They were appointed by Rome to rule as puppet governors over the territories. And then on the other side of the political spectrum, you had the Pharisees and the Zealots. And then there's one other group that lived in caves. They just kind of didn't want anything to do with anybody. But, But these groups were not friendly with Rome. They hated Rome. They believed that Rome's occupation of their country was a curse. It was punishment from God. So you can imagine, you have, this is your political setting. With a political divide like this, when it comes to Roman taxes, well, there's going to be disagreements, aren't there? Sharp disagreements. And that's particularly the case with this tax, the poll tax, the one that is paid with a denarius. The poll tax, poll means person. Uh, it's a, always paid with a denarius. It's, a denarius is a, a roughly equivalent to a, a day's wage for the poor working class. So today we would say in our dollars it would be roughly $100. This was a tax that Rome enforced on anyone not just in Israel, but on anyone living in conquered territory that wasn't a Roman citizen. That's why there were censuses. Or censai. I don't know. Think, think about the census when Jesus was born, Luke chapter 2. Remember that? In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered, and all went to be registered, each to his own town, all the world. Rome took that census. So, that they would know how many people lived in an area, so they would know how to enforce the poll tax. And most of the people in Israel hated this tax in particular because, even though it was relatively inexpensive, it was another reminder that they were subjects to Rome. In fact, when Rome first imposed this tax way back in 6 AD, there was an insurrection, a revolution against the Romans, led by a man named Judas of Galilee. And this guy, Judas, not the same Judas with Jesus, neither one of them, it's a, he's a dead now. He taught that, that Jews could not be ruled by a worldly king, especially a Caesar, but that they should serve God alone. Well, the Roman army, along with Herod's armies, crushed this uprising, and they crucified Judas. We can't really know for sure, but here in Jerusalem, when Jesus is speaking to the people around, there's probably people gathered around there who lost their fathers or their brothers in those battles. It was only 25 years prior to this. It's just speculation, but that kind of gives you a sense for the setting, doesn't it? Another issue at hand is the Messiah question. Is Jesus the Messiah or is he not the Messiah? Well, the crowds, the popular expectation was that Messiah was supposed to come and overthrow Rome's control. So if Jesus is the Messiah in the way that the Pharisees and the crowds understood him or understood Messiah, then he's going to be on the side against Rome. And if he's against Rome, he's certainly going to be against the Roman tax. Because that tax symbolized Rome's dominion. So when the Pharisees on one side and the Herodians on the other side come together, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, when they come together to ask Jesus whether it's right to pay the tax, they believe that Jesus is either going to say, yes, you should pay the tax, and so offend the crowds and lose the crowd's loyalty and prove he's not the Messiah. Or, on the other hand, he's going to say, no, you shouldn't pay the tax. And if he does that, then he'll offend the Herodians, and they'll have a reason to go running off to Pilate to have him crucified, the same way that the last guy who publicly opposed the tax was killed. Heads, I win. Tails, you lose. So what's it going to be, Jesus? Are you pro-Rome or are you anti-Rome? In the minds of the devious, this is the absolute perfect question. There's no way out. They've got Jesus right where they want him. And you can just see how confident they are when they come up to Jesus with this question, can't you? Look at the way that they butter him up in verse 16. Teacher, we know you are true. They're flying you know, we know we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. Of course they're lying because if he taught the way of God truthfully, they would follow him. They don't believe what they're saying. But well, they do believe this. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by their appearances. Now, what they're not saying is you don't care about people. What do you, what, what they mean is, you don't care what people think, you're just going to tell the truth. And that's True of Jesus. Now, on the one hand, this looks like flattery, doesn't it? Saying really nice things that you don't really believe about someone in order to get them to like you. That's what flattery is, and this kind of has that feel to it. But look closely. Remember what the trap is. What is that mechanism in the trap? The trap is to get Jesus to offend the crowds or to offend Rome. So by reminding Jesus that he isn't a person who is swayed by public opinion, they're telling him that to be really true to himself, he's got to offend somebody. Now, Jesus, you don't mind offending people, right? Who are you going to offend? Which group will you choose to offend? Because we know you're someone who doesn't mind offending people. The flattery is its like the cheese in the rat trap, isn't it? It, it makes it look more appealing, more enticing for Jesus. At least that's the plan. But for three years, and we've walked with Jesus through, these, through his ministry, for three years, Jesus has never once fallen for one of these traps, has he? Look at verse 18. Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why do you put me to the test? You hypocrites? It's clear from this statement that he's certainly not, to offend, not, not afraid to offend anyone, because that's what he's doing here. He's calling them hypocrites. So they're right. Jesus isn't afraid to offend people. That's still true. But he is aware of their malice. He's aware of the trap. He knows that they mean to harm him. And that this question is meant to cause him harm. And so he asks them why they're putting him to the test. It's as if to say, Jesus is saying to them, don't you know, I have already been tested by the evil one the one who's pulling your strings? Don't you know I've already passed his tests? Why are you still testing me? And so here's his answer. Show me the coin for the tax. There's a particular coin that was always used to pay the tax, the denarius. So they brought him a denarius. Now, I just want you to pause here for a moment. We don't know who brought him the coin. The text doesn't tell us. It could have been a Herodian. It could have been a Pharisee. There was somebody there. But either way, if it was a Jew who held such a coin in his pocket, then he's already violating God's law. Let me show you why. Even even possessing this coin was a major no-no. Possessing this coin was equivalent to having a little god, a little idol, a little statue in your pocket. Because on the front of the coin was the face of, of Caesar Tiberius with the inscription, Caesar Tiberius Divi Filius, which means son of a god. Caesar Tiberius, son of a god. And on the back of the coin was the inscription Pontifex Maximus, which means chief high priest. This was heresy to a Jew. Caesar was not the son of a god, and they knew that. Nor was he the chief high priest to a god. Caesar was a false god. So to have an image, of a false god on a coin in your pocket would have been taboo. And yet somebody amongst those people has this coin, which is probably why Jesus calls them hypocrites. He knows this is all a show for them. They have no real convictions. They're just interested in power. Well, anyway, they take the coin out. They give it to Jesus. Jesus asks the question that any three-year-old in the entire known world would have known the answer to. Whose image and whose inscription is on the coin? And the answer, Caesar's. Caesar's image. It's Caesar's inscription. And again, that inscription is really, really important. It said that Caesar was the son of God. It said that he was a chief high priest, Don't forget that, okay? Squeeze that between your thumb and your forefinger and just hold on to it for later because that's going to become really important. Well, in response, Jesus makes that famous statement, the reason we're here today. Render to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's. Who used the word render this week? (laughs) Unless you are producing lard, from animal fat, or you're melting down beeswax, so in other words, unless you're at my house, then uh, you probably did not use the word render this week. And really, that word render has a different definition. Same word, different definition. What it means in this context is give back. Give what is owed. It's Caesar's image on that coin. Caesar owns the things that his image is stamped on, therefore it's Caesar's coin, and you're obligated to give it back to him, render it to him, whenever he asks for it. In short, yeah, pay the tax. But the the extension of this, the extension of what Jesus is teaching, goes beyond just paying taxes. Rendering to Caesar what is his means more than giving him back his, his denarius. Is Benjamins. Living in a state under a ruler entitles the ruler of that state to more than just taxes. We also owe our obedience to the laws of the state along with our respect of the authorities who are over us. And Paul makes this really clear for us in Romans chapter 13. And what I believe is happening in Romans chapter 13 is Paul is simply expounding on what Jesus is teaching us here in Matthew. So we're going to look at Paul's understanding of Jesus' teaching. And like we've said before, the best commentaries are the ones that are in the Bible. So we're going to use Paul's commentary of Matthew chapter 22 here. Romans 13, verses 1 through 8. And I'm just going to read this for us. Let every person, this is Paul, Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, that's really important. The basis for Paul's argument is that governments, worldly governments, human governments, are underneath God's sovereign control. Right? Now, let's keep going. Therefore, verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers Therefore, one must be in subjection. Not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Okay, that's interesting. But why is this important? What's the application? Well, look what Paul says next. Because of this, verse 6, because of what? Because the governing authorities are servants of God. Because they serve God. And because they're there for your good. Because of that, pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Very similar to what Jesus said, isn't it? Give back to Caesar what is owed to Caesar. Give back to God what is owed to him. Pay all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other. That is a, a debt that we will never repay. Love each other. For the one who loves one another, another has fulfilled the law. Now Paul's argument, and recognize he's getting all of this from the Bible. It's not coming out of the blue. He's getting this from the Bible, and especially the book of Daniel. If you'll remember, this past year, as a church, on Wednesday nights, we studied the book of Daniel. And we saw in Daniel that it was God who put Israel underneath Babylonian rule and then underneath Persian rule and then underneath Greek rule and then Roman rule. The governing authorities had been put in place by God and they had been given the responsibility to encourage the good and punish the bad. That's why Paul, led along by the Spirit, echoing Jesus, says, if you owe taxes to the state... Pay taxes. If you have revenue, pay it. If you have respect or honor, give respect or honor because those authorities over you are servants of God. Give them their due. Owe no one anything. And for you Dave Ramsey fans, owe no one anything does not mean you shouldn't have a mortgage. He's wrong about that. It means that as a Christian living in obedience to God, we give people their due, okay? So let's not take verses out of context. So Christians, pay your taxes, honor your leaders, because that is what is due to them. Now, let's bring this from there, first century to here, 21st century. In our country, we do not have a Caesar, We are not ruled by a Caesar, we are not ruled by a king, and believe it or not, we are not ruled by a congress or a president or a governor. Technically, because we are a constitutional republic, we are ruled by law, and the law is written by Congress, executed by a president, and adjudicated by the courts. That means our duty, according to Jesus, what we owe our country is obedience to the Constitution and the support of candidates who we believe will better serve their God-given responsibility to legislate and enforce good and punish evil. If ever there is a candidate who switches what is good and evil and you vote for him, you are in violation of Romans chapter 13. I didn't mean to say that. (laughs) But the Spirit is speaking today. All right? Obey God rather than man and do not let the government switch what is good and evil. God has instituted and given them the authority to enforce good and evil according to what God says is good and evil. And so the extension is that we pay taxes that the government levies to help accomplish that goal. We give back to Caesar or the state what is due to the state. Okay? Now, let's keep going because this gets interesting. Because from Jesus' statement, it's really clear that there is a limit on what is due to Caesar. Not everything belongs to Caesar. Not everything belongs to the state. God has only given the state this much sovereignty. That means when Caesar begins to think that everything, including worship, belongs to Caesar, or when the state begins to say, we will tell you how and where and when to worship God, or we will tell you what you should and you should not believe, well, then we do not owe that kind of obedience to Caesar because Caesar, in that case, has stepped outside of his God-given authority and his God-given responsibility. And this is one of the reasons why we as pastors decided last fall that we would willfully defy the state because we believe the state in its response to what really is a dangerous virus We believe that the state went outside of its ordained realm of power. And so it was beholden upon us as Christians to respond accordingly. What we owed to Caesar was not obedience in this case. What we owed to Caesar as God's spokespeople was a reminder to Caesar that he was stepping outside of his God-given authority, I have a couple illustrations for you. Let me just help you think about this. Some people think of the state and the church as two separate circles. You have the government over here, trying to look at it the way that you're looking at it, and then you have the the God circle over here. And there are some things that are a part of our civic life, our secular life, voting, paying taxes, being a good citizen, sending your kids to school, And there are some things that are part of our religious life. Going to church, teaching your kids religious things, and maybe a handful of other things, a few other things. That is not at all, this is not at all how the Bible speaks of this relationship. Think of all power, next slide. Think of all power and all authority being within the big circle. And that big circle is God's sovereignty. And within that big circle is a much smaller, very tiny circle and that little blue circle you see is the state's authority. All that the state has been given is within God's authority. So when we obey the state, we're obeying God. That's how Paul was talking about it in Romans 13. That means how we interact with the state isn't separate from our reverence to God. It's within our reverence to God. The problem is that what the state is tempted to do, and this has always been the case throughout history, beginning in Babel or Babylon, and then you see it happening in the book of Exodus, and then you see it happening in the book of Daniel, and then you see it happening in Revelation. The temptation of the state, next slide, is to usurp God's authority and to take their little God-given circle and expand it so that they encircle God. In the Bible, whenever a government does this, it is described as a beast. So the beasts in Daniel, right there. The beasts in Revelation, right there. And what we owe a beastly government is another sermon for another day. Okay? I will say this, though. Okay? Last word. I get excited about this. In Revelation, God honors his people when they do not bow to the beast. And those who do bow to such a government are judged for eternity because that government has made itself out to be God. And no matter how strong the temptation is, even at the threat of death, we shall not serve another God. But, like I said, another sermon, another day. The main idea here in this text is not so much how much is owed to the state, but how little is owed to the state. We make much of taxes. But taxes are very little in comparison to what we owe to God. Jesus says, you can go to the next slide. Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, no more and no less. But far more importantly, the bright shining command is what we are to pay to God, what is his. We give to God what is due to him. And it is that comment that so silenced and baffled the opposition. What did Jesus mean by that? What belongs to God that we should give it back to him? Well, in a word, everything. Right? The big circle. Everything belongs to God. That's what we teach the kids. When they're two years old, God made everything. It's all his. But there are two things in particular, and we're going to finish today's Sermon on these two things. Two things in particular that we owe to God and both have been a part of this ongoing discussion Jesus has been having with these men. The first thing that is owed to God is ourselves. In a way far more important than Caesar's image on that coin, God's image is on us, isn't it? We are created in God's image, and so we bear his image. And so Jesus is teaching these people that because God's image is on us, we owe God ourselves. Give to Caesar the coin that has his picture on it. Give yourself to God because his picture is on you. Through and through, heart, mind, and soul, all of who we are belongs to God. That's why in just a few verses, he's going to say that the greatest commandment When the Pharisees ask him this question, he's going to say, what's the greatest commandment? He's going to say, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Why? You belong to God. God's image is on you. We are created for God's glory. We're created to make his name great. We're created to make his name magnified and above everything else. We're to show the world the big circle. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to God. And the primary way that this works itself out in our lives is in our worship of God, in our obedience to God. We live to worship God. We live to obey him. That's what is owed to him. In the parable of the tenants, so chapter 21, verses 33 to the end of the chapter, we talked about this a few weeks ago, those tenants in the vineyard Owed their fruit to the master because the vineyard belonged to the master. Do you remember that? It was his vineyard. He planted it. He set up the guards for it, the the towers for it. He put the fence around it, and he put tenants there to give him his fruit. The fruit was owed to the master. And Jesus' point in the parable was the fruit that was owed to the master was the fruit of obedience. In the same way that those tenants owed their fruit to that master because. The vineyard belonged to the master. Friends, you and I owe our obedience to God because his image is on us. We belong to him. But if you'll remember, the tenants in that parable would not give the master what was due to him, would they? And so the master sent his son to them. And what did they do to him? Let's, let's read that Matthew 21, verse 37. Finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. They owe the son respect. Just think of that. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And that does bring us to the second thing we owe to God. We owe God allegiance to the son. We're letting that parable sort of teach us how to understand what Jesus is teaching here. I told you a minute ago to hold on to that inscription. The image of Caesar on that coin and the inscription was, Son of a God, great high priest. Well, what, or rather who, is standing right there amongst the Pharisees and the Herodians Who is the actual living, walking son of God, great high priest who perfectly bears the image of God? It's Jesus. We read it in Hebrews this morning in our call to worship. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint, same word. Icon, image, the exact image of his nature. And in the parable of the tenants, he's the son of God whom the master sends, and in the parable of the wedding feast, last week he is the son whom the king is celebrating. The image of God is more completely, more purely, more totally, more truly in Jesus and on Jesus than on any other human ever because Jesus is the son of God. And so when Jesus tells the Pharisees, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, he's commanding them Listen, this is what he's telling them. You need to recognize the image of God in me. You're rejecting me, but you need to see the image of God in me. You need to see the inscription that is on me, written by the Spirit, Son of God, and you must give God the glory that is due to him, give him what you owe to him by honoring me as his son. That's the message. They can't. They can't do it. Last week, they wouldn't go to the wedding feast. The week before, they tried to kill the son. They cannot see the father in the son because they don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. So what do they do instead? Well, in this case, when they heard this, they, they marveled. Oh, he's Jesus, marvelous politician. He got out of our trap. He's so smart. He's so wise. What a good teacher this man Jesus is. And they left him and went away. Listen, if you see Jesus as the Son of God today, don't just marvel. Don't just marvel at who he is and then leave here and walk away. If you have sincere questions about Christianity and who Jesus is, ask your questions. Probe into the depths of the wonders of the gospel. God can withstand your questions. Ask them. But don't just ask questions to test him and then wonder at the marvel of the answers and walk away. At some point, you have to reckon with whether or not he really is the son of God. Remember how I said earlier, we owe God ourselves? We owe him our worship, we owe him our obedience. Well, if you're not a Christian, there's some really bad news. You can't. You cannot give God what belongs to him. You can't worship him. You can't live in obedience to him, because the fact is, because of your own selfishness, you're too set on living for yourself and obeying your own desires rather than God's. And as a result, because you do not and cannot give to God what is owed to him, friend, you face you face his judgment. And that's where you're stuck. You owe God something that you don't want to pay back and you can't pay back. And you're stuck. That's called bondage. That's why it's bad news. But there's good news. Astonishingly good news. It's such good news that we call it the the capital G, good news, the gospel. In order to save us from that judgment, God sent his son to us to purchase us from our rebellion. Since we couldn't give God what was due him, God gave us something that wasn't due to us. He gave us his son. That's why it's called the gospel of grace. We have received something that was not due to us. Something, someone, we did not earn. And the Son, by his own self-sacrifice, he frees us from our inability to worship God. He frees us from our rebellion against God, from that bondage we were talking about. In the Son, through the Spirit, We can rightly worship God. We can rightly honor God. We can actually obey God. Through the Son, we can give God what is due to God. Because the Son did it. And because the Son is so important to God the Father, and I think that's the wrong word. That's an understatement. Because the Father so loves the Son... Because our salvation was accomplished through the Son, the Father's desire is that we rightly reverence and worship and give every bit of our allegiance and our honor and our love to the Son. Everything centers on Jesus. Give to Caesar the petty stuff that we owe to Caesar. Give God Jesus, which means honor. and worship him and obey him and love him. Everything centers on Jesus. This isn't about your taxes. This is about your affection for Jesus. Do you love him? Will you worship him as your king, king above all else? Is Jesus more important to you than politics? More important to you than taxes? Is he more important to you than yourself? Will you worship him? Or will you just marvel and walk away? Worship him. Let's pray.